Welcome to The Vast Majority. I'm Jackman Managing Editor Micah Utrecht. This is the second part of my conversation with Eric Blanc, author of the new book, Red State Revolt, The Teacher Strikes and Working Class Politics. His book is so good, we had to have two conversations about it. It's, folks, it's, it's so nice, we had to podcast twice. Oh, my, the producer, Sarah Heard, my producer, is looking at me, just, just rolling her eyes at me right now. But it's true. I'd highly recommend listening to the first episode, which is up at Jacobin Radio. In this episode, we talk about the role of the militant minority of rank-and-file workers in the teacher strike wave, what their presence meant in Arizona and West Virginia, and what their absence meant in Oklahoma. We also talk about the possibilities for radicals today to intervene in labor struggles around the country and to help rebuild that militant minority. Eric has a whole chapter on the militant minority in his book, and I wrote a paper for the Labor Studies Journal, along with sociologist Barry Eidlin, on the role of the militant minority in the American labor movement historically, what the militant minority did, why it disappeared in American unions, and why the rebuilding of that layer of the militant minority is central to revitalizing U.S. labor. I'll link to that paper in the show notes. Okay, here's Eric Blanc, author of Red State Revolt, The Teacher Strikes, and Working Class Politics. So you have a chapter in your book called The Militant Minority. It's about the role of this militant minority in, the the role of or lack of that militant minority in the three states that you cover. So can you just first talk about this idea? What is the militant minority in the labor context and what does it matter? Yeah, the the term militant minority refers basically to uh, small groups of dedicated rank and file um, radicals in different industries. Uh, and historically, the role of this militant minority has been really crucial towards making big class struggle wins happen. So in the 1930s, and even earlier when the term was coined, more during the period of the Wobblies and the turn of the century, the idea is that, you know, at most times and places, most workers are not going to be engaged in uh, active organizing, and they're just going to be struggling to survive. And so to kind of get the ball rolling for mass collective action and things like strikes, you need a core group of people that are oriented in that direction and that have a sense of the class struggle, have a sense of uh, history and that can try to use that analysis and those lessons learned from past struggles to push the labor movement forward. So that the militant minority then is this sort of nucleus of radicals organizing to build working class power in their workplaces and their unions. The argument that some people, myself included, have made is that the missing militant minority, the the layer of this class struggle focused uh, experienced cadre of activists on shop floors, not just people who have ideas about class struggle who are in universities or whatever, but people who are on the shop floor of workplaces around the country. That is the missing ingredient in union revitalization in this country, that that b- building up or rebuilding that layer of people who played such key roles uh, you know, it, during the Great Depression period and the uh, post-war period and the uh, every, every time there's been uh, labor upsurge in this country, the, there's been a militant minority at the center of it. That's the that's the piece that needs to be rebuilt most desperately if we're going to have 
uh, labor revitalization in this country? Yeah, I mean, we can take a step back. Part of the weakness then of the labor movement in the United States and of the socialist movement have been that really these two movements have been divorced, particularly since the Red Scare. And that was purposeful, which is that the government saw what was going on and saw that it was communists and socialists who were responsible for building working class power, rebuilding the labor movement in the 1930s. And so they went out of their way to kick the red, the Reds out of unions. And unfortunately, for the most part, since that period, uh, the left and labor have been sort of working, uh, not necessarily across purposes, but at least in isolation from each other. And that has weakened both. I mean, that's the really tragic aspect is that the left uh, has been very weak and marginal uh, because it hasn't been based on the type of institutions uh, and struggles that can give it leverage. But in turn, the labor movement has declined in the United States much more than in most other countries, precisely because it didn't have this core of uh, radicals and class struggle activists that could you know, do the types of actions that are necessary to win. This is an argument that I just have to make a plug for my uh, advisor in grad school, Barry Eidlin, who wrote about in his book, uh, The Class Idea in the United States and Canada, that th- that is the what sets the U.S. apart in many ways, is that uh, that decline of that militant minority in, in countries where the militant minority was not uh, severed from the, the the working class in the same ways. Uh, the, the labor movement has in many ways stayed stronger. Um, so you mentioned the role, you know, socialists play this important role in, in the militant minority, but it's not just socialists. And, and you write about people in your book, both people who are explicit socialists, but also people who are who are not ideological in that way, but are just class struggle focused and experienced organizers and people who realize that the need to, uh, the, the way that you can win in, in union organizing and on the job is through a class struggle appro- approach, through fighting the boss, right? So it's this mix of uh, people who bring an explicit ideology, a leftist political ideology, to the shop floor, as well as people who just have a experience in doing class struggle, fighting the boss. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, it's definitely not just socialists. So it, in the book, I talk about, for instance, two layers of the militant minority that played a really important role and who weren't socialists. So the the first is in West Virginia. You had a layer of rank and file leaders in the southern part of the state, which is really uh, the place where the traditions of radicalism going back to the labor uh, wars, really the mine wars of the early 20th century were strongest, in which there's a real lived uh, continuity through families of, you know, fighting the boss, going out on strike, what, what it takes to win. And, you know, these weren't socialists, but these were teachers whose parents oftentimes had participated in the coal strikes of the 1980s, and who were able to transmit this type of militancy into the strike. And they initiated the first walkouts that happened uh, in West Virginia, these one-day walkouts that helped kind of inspire the rest of the state. And similarly, in Arizona, one of the key uh, organizers and leaders of the militant minority was a person named Rebecca Gorelli, who was not a socialist, but who had participated as a rank-and-file member in the Chicago teacher strike of 2012, and who absorbed by participation uh, a lot of the crucial lessons of the Chicago strike. And then then as a teacher in Arizona, was able to transmit them into the type of really successful organizing efforts that they ended up implementing. So is it accurate to say that the 
huge difference between Arizona and West Virginia on the one hand and Oklahoma and the other is this militant minority, the presence of this militant minority in those two states, Arizona and West Virginia, and its lack in Oklahoma? Yeah, that's the case I try to make in the book. I think we can maybe bracket West Virginia uh, to begin with because there were some additional factors that made West Virginia more successful. You know, this history of labor militancy uh, is the most obvious example. So the unions were actually relatively stronger there, and the traditions of uh, strike organizing were stronger. So you can't just say that in West Virginia it was the militant minority was the only recipe for success. But if you compare Oklahoma and Arizona, there, yeah, I think it's quite clear that the crucial factor that was lacking in Oklahoma was this militant minority, because on really on any criteria, you would have expected the strike to be more successful in Oklahoma. Arizona, the right wing is even more entrenched. You have more racial divisions. The unions were much weaker. The, even the size of the Facebook group was smaller. So all of the things that you would expect uh, to be a help for the strike exist in Oklahoma. But nevertheless, their strike was significantly weaker. And it's, when you were there or when you read about it in the book, you can see why that's the case, that the organizers uh, in, West, in Oklahoma that initiated and led the strike, you know, just they, did, they had literally zero experience organizing before. I think given that they did okay and they did their best, I don't really want to like rag on them too much because they took a lot of, um, you know, it took a lot of energy for them to do what they did. And so I think, you know, they deserve credit for that. But in the absence of some sort of sense of how you win a strike, they relied a lot on Facebook. They didn't do systematic buildup actions. They tried to make an alliance with superintendents instead of giving them an ultimatum. Sort of a whole set of um, strategies and tactics that underlay both the success of West Virginia and in, and in Arizona just didn't exist in Oklahoma because the people organized, uh, they had never had a sense of uh, strikes and organizing before. Yeah, you had people in all three of these states trying to harness this incredible upsurge in rank-and-file militancy and this willingness to take drastic action like going on strike. And that organic energy can play out in different ways, right? And in Oklahoma, one of the ways that it seemed to play out, and this was true you know, both on the on the sort of rank and file level and among the people who had started the Facebook groups that became the two of them that became so important to that strike, it played out in this like anti-union sentiment, right? That there were the, the two guys who started the Facebook groups in Oklahoma were people who were very angry at the unions in that state. They weren't members of the teachers unions in that state. And so it it the their anger played out in this sort of ironically anti-union way in a lot of ways versus states like Arizona and West Virginia where the, the some of the people who are playing those leadership roles were people who, who could see the anger that people were putting forward and and would say no the the union shouldn't be our target of our ire here we should be focusing our anger towards the boss that the union isn't the the enemy we we need to be uh, focusing our anger on the boss yeah, well, in West Virginia, the the argument that the militant minority made when there's that type of sentiment expressed was, well, we are the union. The union isn't this like third party that exists out there. We are members. And even those of us who aren't members, really, we uh, as workers, the union is us. It's what we collectively do. 
And so we need to collectively push so that the union represents what we want it to do. And they succeeded in that. They pushed the union uh, in a better direction. I, I would say in Oklahoma, to be fair, it's less that they were anti-union. It's more that they were skeptical. And so they didn't really channel the energy through the union. They, they, weren't, you know, they weren't denouncing the union so much as that they really just didn't see the importance of unions and the importance of building an alliance with it and, and trying to transform and push them. Um, but yeah, the, the impact ended up being the same, which was that they didn't have the sufficient force to build that kind of collective organizing and power that sustains a successful strike. So after nine days in Oklahoma, uh, they hadn't won more demands from the state and the movement really dissipated and, uh, you know, didn't succeed in winning its main demands. On that question, can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between the workers who are going on strike and the official union leadership in these states? Because that's a central problem of the entire story is what the rank and file workers wanted to do in each of these states versus what the union leadership was able or willing to do. And it's not quite as simple as good guy rank and file workers versus evil or just do nothing union bureaucrats uh there, there's a more complicated story uh, i'm thinking especially of a state like arizona where it sounds like the the union played a really key role even if they weren't exactly in the driver's seat of these strikes but can you just talk about that relationship between rank and file workers and union leadership maybe in general and then in these strikes in particular yeah, overall, the dynamic was similar in the three states, which is that the push for the strikes came from below through the rank and file, that the union leadership in all three states was very reluctant to move towards a strike. And you can understand it's uh, it's illegal action, which they could all get thrown in prison or their treasury could be seized through fines. You know, there's an understandable material um, underpinning to the conservatism, uh, the relative conservatism of union leaders, and also just their longstanding connections and tradition of supporting the Democratic Party as the main strategic horizon. So it took this rank and file sentiment to push towards a strike. Um, and they succeeded to a certain extent. I mean, I think that we should be fair that without the unions, as you mentioned earlier, it's hard to imagine uh, the strike succeeding uh, to the extent that they did. But it required this pressure from below. And part of the reason that the union leadership in some ways went much further than you might expect, they didn't try to ultimately stop the strikes in, in most of the states. It's not like they just tried to crush it, which is different than some union bureaucracies in the past. They ended up kind of getting pressured from below. And part of that is because the Republicans were in power and there is, wasn't this level of uh, alternative infrastructure that they could have used to do something like collective bargaining to win, the, win their demands. And so ultimately, the labor leaderships uh, kind of ceded to the pressure from below. Although in the process, in a place like West Virginia, they tried to end the strike halfway through and then were pushed from below to continue. And then they came back on board and said, oh, we made a mistake. You know, thank you for, uh, you know, thank you for writing the ship. So the big story then was the rank and file led. And to their credit, the union leadership, for the most part, followed. Uh, but unfortunately, af after the strike, they pivoted almost immediately back to the old uh, strategies. So they, they don't appear to have learned much in the way of lessons uh, strategically. 
Although it's funny, you have several quotes in the book from union leaders, I think both at the time of the strikes and in the wake of them, very openly admitting that the the rank-and-file radicals who were pushing them were right all along and that they were wrong to be so conservative. Yeah, although many of them now uh, are less uh, happy about uh, expressing that publicly because they've, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, gone back to the old ways. Well, you got them on the record before they could before they could think yeah. better of what what they should be saying to you. Um, so th- the whole discussion of the militant minority is important for figuring out how an action like a strike can happen, but it's also important for radicals figuring out how they should be, you know, acting as political actors in the world. Right? I mean. The story that you tell of Arizona and West Virginia is one in which radicals of various stripes, whether as ideological socialists, you know, members of the DSA, or as you mentioned, just people who aren't socialists but who be- believe in class struggle unionism and have gathered lessons from those from from union organizing in the past. It's of radicals of both of those kinds playing the decisive role in these strikes. So that begs the question of what, you know, what should radicals take from that reality? Uh, You quote someone in Oklahoma, a DSA member who was supporting the Oklahoma strikes, but then realized by the time they were over that Really, there's no better way that they could have been supporting those strikes than to actually be on the shop floor with other teachers, that to, to participate as rank-and-file workers in a teacher's union that goes on strike rather than as kind of uh, leftist supporters from the sidelines. Um, so can you talk about what you s- write about in the book the the role of these uh, this militant minority, what the lessons of that are for other radicals today? Yeah, the the big lesson, just to be blunt, is that radicals should organize at their workplaces and and particularly uh, try to organize in strategic workplaces uh, with unions and transform those unions. You know, different traditions of socialists have been arguing this for a while now in the United States. I'd say labor notes in particular. Um, and different folks associated with it have made this case for you know what we could call the rank and file strategy, which is that the most strategic thing to do if you are a radical is to um, get a job in a strategic industry with a union and to try to then transform uh, working class power, working class organization by your role as a rank and file activist. And maybe if you build a caucus, win the union leadership, but on a militant basis. Um, and that case has been made, and one of the really amazing things about this strike wave uh, is that, in a way that I wouldn't have even really predicted, it just vindicated that so clearly. Because you see, you see that this relatively small group of socialists and uh, non-socialist radicals was just able to play this totally disproportionate role that in, in a movement that ended up affecting millions of people. You know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of teachers, millions of students, and then family members, also millions of people. But because they were in this very uh, powerful center, which is a workplace, that in turn could be the center of a powerful union, which in turn could be a center of a powerful sort of city and statewide struggle, um, radicals were able to 
have an impact that just to be honest, in any other type of organizing, you don't see. I, I think that social movements are extremely important. Electoral politics are extremely important. But um, just as far as your leverage, being a rank and file worker in which you can push the union and push your coworkers in a certain direction, you don't have that to the same extent in any other type of struggle. The quote you have from that DSA member, Xavier Doolittle, in part feels like he is thinking about what just happened, what he just saw with this Oklahoma teacher strike and maybe some missed opportunities there and, and thinking over in his head, wow, I maybe could have played a really decisive role in the strike if I and other people who thought like me, who had the strategic and political lessons that could, that could maybe harness some of this energy in a different direction, the, the, the strike could have ended in a much more, uh, not that it was a bad strike by any stretch, but that it could have gone further, it could have won more. Yeah, I think that's certainly the case. And then the conclusion then for hopefully activists who are listening to this is that, you know, take seriously the the idea that you might consider getting a job uh, if you don't already have one in a place where you could potentially play that similar role. It's it's to be honest, it's not extremely sexy work most of the time. You know, it's uh, it might feel like a slog and it often is a slog. You have to learn uh, a trade, you know, whether it's education or uh, nursing, you know, it's a real serious um, life choice that shouldn't be made uh, haphazardly. But if you're looking to you know, change the world and be an activist in the long term, I can't think of a better way to do that than by you know, becoming a rank and file labor activist. I think it's a very exciting time to do that, partly because the growth of DSA means that you would be doing that not alone, but in conjunction with dozens, potentially hundreds of other people uh, in a given uh, union to really uh, transform the labor movement into a fighting force, which now, particularly after these strikes, feels like a possibility in a way that hasn't really felt like a possibility in a long time. So it's a very exciting time, I think, to uh, be a labor activist, uh, particularly if you're young and, and kind of get in on the ground floor. And there are resources both through the Democratic Socialists of America, but also, as you mentioned, through Labor Notes, which this is the whole raison d'etre of Labor Notes, is to try to cohere this kind of militant minority, this the group of people who push this kind of class struggle unionism. Uh, so there are resources out there for people who want to do that. Your book is about the red state strikes, but can we talk about the strikes that have happened since the red state strikes, the ones in California and cities like Los Angeles and Oakland, and uh, Colorado and elsewhere. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of L.A. and Chicago in 2012 and today versus those red state strikes. There's an interesting discussion about the role of the militant minority in those different cities. seems like in the red state strikes where there were weak unions and really abysmal conditions and the role of the militant minority in those states was to try to harness the uh, the organic anger that existed in a way that could win the most for workers. Uh, and then some of that anger and some of that energy then went into building up a strong union for the, for the first time in a while in those states versus a place like Los Angeles or Chicago where the militant minority, you know, they were operating in a context of a strong union in democratic cities and democratic states. And 
they were engaged in a more long-term project to transform their unions uh, into fighting vehicles, into the vehicle for these mass strikes. So they were going about the planning of and executing of these strikes in a more deliberate and long-term way than places like Arizona and West Virginia where things were popping off and these milita- the militant minority sort of could ride the wave. Uh, is that accurate? What's your read on that? In some ways, there was a political vacuum in, in these red states that doesn't exist to the same extent uh, in a place like L.A. or Oregon or uh, other places where there's collective bargaining in which uh, print and strikes are legal. So the union officials and the union structures can uh, engage and take a lead on strike activity in a way that just wasn't the same uh, in some of the red states. So the implications of that for the strategies of uh, these militants really was important. And and I think it's important to keep these distinctions in mind because one of the things that has happened, I've been traveling around a bit now uh, talking with folks uh, about the book, is that some educators across the country just thought, well, if I create a Facebook page uh, and we sort of copy the tactics and organizing in West Virginia, then we'll have a statewide strike uh, where I'm at. You know, I, I met some educators in Oregon who clearly, um, I think, underestimated the extent to which a different political context does require a different tactic at a minimum. And so, yeah, in a place like Chicago or L.A. or a lot of other places where there's more of a dense union infrastructure, the, you're not going to have this uh, volcanic, Facebook-driven uh, semi-spontaneous strike because the unions have more weight. There's more of a uh, institutional space to be able to organize a strike and make your demands heard. So that in turn requires really a more long-term perspective of building a caucus uh, that can collectively start raising people's expectations and fight for uh, winning the leadership of the unions. In in West Virginia, it was almost the opposite. Is As you mentioned, they organized this mass strike, pushed the union much further it wanted to go. And then in the uh, wake of that, thousands of people joined the union and uh, a caucus emerged after the strike uh, to begin this process of transforming the union. But um, yeah, you're not going to see the same rhythms and um, same order of events in a context like a red state or blue state, I don't think. So what is the the forward-looking prognosis for the teacher strike wave uh, in particular and and the the rebuilding of a militant minority in the American labor movement in general? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I don't think it's just a question of volunteerism. You know, we just convince enough uh, socialists to become rank and file activists. And then uh, presto, you have a new militant minority across the country that's able to you know, revive the labor movement. Some of this is really going to be the product of a more organic emergence of rank and file activists because they see the success of strikes elsewhere. So right now, the the strike wave is limited to education. There is a strike wave in education, but, you know, that's not the majority of workers in the country. And so one of the uh, stakes is for, first of all, the educators to continue winning and to prevent the Republicans from rolling back the wins that have happened, because in order to inspire and empower other workers to do similar types of actions, it makes a big difference to see that educators keep on fighting and winning. So if educators can keep on fighting and winning, that's going to inspire other radicals and other uh, just ordinary workers to risk 
doing strikes. And it'll be the experience of this type of collective action that will create new workplace leaders who can really, on a mass level, be uh, the fulcrum of the emergence of a new widespread militant minority. One of the big stakes then is both for the strikes to continue to be able to inspire other workers and for the socialist movement to continue growing. I mean, I think we have this big opening right now because of the Bernie Sanders campaign to uh, reconnect the socialist movement with the labor movement, not just through uh, the strike wave, but by talking about class politics and talking about socialism with literally millions of people. It's this amazing opportunity that I think some people take for granted. They're like, oh yeah, Bernie, uh, sweet, you know. But like, think about the implications that it has that somebody on a national level is talking about class politics and is a democratic socialist. That gives us this opportunity to go out and organize as socialists um, really a huge layer of the population that otherwise we might not be able to reach out to. And part of the task then is to convince them that politics doesn't end in the ballot box, but in fact has to also be transmuted. The political revolution has to be uh, spread to their workplace. So I think that you can see the source of uh, the reemergence of a much wider militant minority, both through the Bernie Sanders campaign, the regrowth of DSA, and hopefully the spread of strikes, uh, both in education to other sectors. Eric, thanks a lot. Thanks. The Vast Majority is produced by Sarah Hurd at Studio 10 in Chicago. You can subscribe to The Vast Majority and to all the Jacobin Radio podcasts on iTunes or Stitcher. And you can always read us at jacobinmag.com.